I saw her come. Let you into my private conversation there. We'll get started here. We'll begin with the word of prayer. Well, that seems a little loud. Does that seem loud? Maybe that's, that's better. Okay. Uh, thanks, Nathan. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity now to reflect on heaven. I pray that as we do, that I would be accurate with my uh, exegesis and uh, clear with my presentation and the order of the topics and the things that we'll consider. And I pray ultimately, Father, to the end of this class, not just last week, this week, but next week, that collectively these will provide a means for us as believers to be encouraged to see something perhaps a little bit more concretely about heaven such that it would motivate us and encourage us in our day-to-day walk with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we are discussing the topic of heaven. This is the second class. Uh, My goal, which I mentioned just there in the prayer, is to try to overcome some of the misconceptions that people have about heaven or even misgivings about it or lack of information about it so that you think, well, I know it's someplace where you go to heaven or you go to hell. Um, I want to give you more than that, something concrete from the word that that gives you some encouragement today. By the way, I'm curious here, how many of you all are here this morning? You were going to go to the conflicts class, but then you came here instead. Okay, so I have at least one elder, that's several. Okay, so that's my my announcement worked. Let's talk about heaven just briefly. First of all, the word heaven, it's used about 582 times in the Bible. There's a Hebrew version of it. There's a Greek version of it. There are three ways in which the the word heaven is used, and it's important that we understand the distinctions between them. The first one is just an atmospheric heaven. When it describes heaven, it says that the heavens poured forth the water. I believe it's in Genesis 7. Uh, It's speaking of the, the area, the breathable atmosphere in the earth. Okay, so it's just this part, you know, around us, near us. That's the heavens, uh, one way that it's used. A second way that the word heaven is used is in reference to the stars, the moon, the heavens, that is like the universe. Uh, That's the second way. Uh, The third way is in which uh, Paul used it in 2 Corinthians 12 when he talks about the third heaven. Uh, He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such one was caught up to the third heaven. So this would be the the third way in which the word heaven is used in the scriptures. And this is the place in which we understand it's the special dwelling of God. It's the the control room, if you will, uh, the place where God is known especially to dwell. We know that he's omnipresent, so we're not denying that. But we're saying there's a certain place in particular where the manifestation of his glory is most clearly seen. Some examples of this would be where the Lord says, the Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men from the place of his dwelling. He looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. It's the place where God dwells. He looks out and it's described as heaven. In Isaiah 66, 1, it says, the Lord says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me? Where is the place of my rest? Again, describing from his perspective, looking down on all things, not from within the universe, but uh, from his special place of dwelling. Uh, There are several attempts to describe it. We know that Paul, 
when he went to the third heaven, he was prohibited from describing it. Uh, that's why he was given a thorn in the flesh. It was something that's so, I'll uh, use maybe uh, mundane words, it pumped him up. It so affected him uh, that he was overwhelmed by it, and yet he was given a thorn. He was not allowed to describe it. However, there are a couple of passages in Scripture that do describe it, but they describe it in words where you're just like, what in the world are they talking about? So, for example, Ezekiel 1 and Revelation 4, <coughs> we see the glory of God on display. We see similar language in the two. Both of these passages describe a scene that's really beyond our ability to understand or comprehend. So it's like they're grasping for words. They're using words where you go, that just sounds really strange. And yet, uh, the point I think that we can get without necessarily trying to tie down every word, the point is that this man is seeing something that's so overwhelming, that's so striking, that's so wonderful, <clears throat> and he's struggling to find visuals uh, given to us. We hear uh, there's, there's sounds, there's lightning, there's thunder, uh, there are colors galore, uh, and these, again, descriptions of things, events, the throne of God is described in Ezekiel one twenty six this way, a likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. Also from the appearance of his waist and upward, I saw, as it were, the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness all around like the appearance of a rainbow on a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was an appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. So when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. So whether it was Isaiah uh, in the presence of God in, in Isaiah 6, or here we have Ezekiel, we think of John, Revelation, and the pictures there, uh, the one is one that is so overwhelming that it, it draw, just pushes one to their knees in uh, in awe and wonder and glory. Now, the images then we have here, uh, it's a place of beauty, it's a place of wonder, it's a place of power, uh, but they're beyond our ability to really comprehend. And when we hear about this, when I say I'm describing heaven now, the tendency is to say that's where we're going to be and that's what I want to clarify uh, these few weeks, is to understand, we tend to think of that, this is our final state. I say, where does everybody end up if we say heaven or hell? But as we noticed last week, there's a, we need to qualify that. When we say heaven, we tend to think, oh, the third heaven where God is, and that's the throne, we're going to be up there as spirit beings, perhaps with wings, perhaps not, but it'll be a spiritual place, everything will be white, and there's gold too, and these things. Those are the two options. And again, this is why you have somebody like, I don't know how we have any Larry Norman fans here. You can show your age if you're a Larry Norman fan, but if you're a Christian rocker, you know Larry Norman. He was one of the original Christian rockers. And he wrote, uh, he, he talks about the rock that doesn't roll. Okay, yeah. uh, he says, uh, what a mess, this is one of his songs. I've sung this many times. I won't do it to you now. Uh, what a mess this world is in. I wonder who began it. Don't ask me, I'm only visiting this planet. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Well, guess what, Larry? <laughs> it is your home. Not in its present state. But this is, I think, the thing we want to realize. We want to get away from this kind of picture of heaven with all kinds of weird stuff 
and recognize that heaven is going to be right here. Uh, we'll talk about this uh, more in a second. Again, I think a lot of times because people say, well, I know it talks about the new heavens and the new earth. So new means like he's going to destroy everything and, you know, it's going to be against some kind of ethereal state. Uh, in 2 Peter 3, we read about this where he says, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So natural, just reading that, you go, okay, so they're gone. <clears throat> he continues, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of the Lord? Uh, when the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, the elements will melt with fervent heat. Yeah, that's a description of the judgment of fire coming and destroying the earth, it sounds like. Uh, there are a number of passages that talk about the new heaven and the new earth. <clears throat> Excuse me, Ephesians 1.10, 2 Peter 3.13, Isaiah 65, Isaiah 66, Revelation 21, and perhaps there's others with or without that same language. But there's a problem if we think that everything is going to be annihilated and there's going to be a creation that is completely detached from what we've experienced here. Uh, we see, first of all, prophecies as well as parables and didactic, didactic passages where the earth is very earth-centered. So, for example, in Daniel 3 and Daniel 7, if you remember, Daniel 3 is describing when Nebuchadnezzar has his vision and there's a statue and he's made of these different materials. And it describes, there's gold, silver, bronze, iron, iron, and clay mixed. And then it says a rock comes out of the heavens. And it says those days the kings uh, of the kings, God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break into pieces and consume all those kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke the pieces, broke in pieces the iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass. So again, in the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had, all these earthly kingdoms, and then a stone comes out, destroys it, and establishes a kingdom forever. And you think, well, that sounds kind of earthly-minded. And certainly that's the way the Jews understand it. We see passages that the shall inherit the earth. It doesn't say, you know, some spiritual state somewhere. It says they're going to inherit the earth. We also have parables that are earth-centered. We're talking about the leaven or the mustard or the tree, the mustard seed that grows in a tree. Very earthly oriented. Finally, you have passages on the subject, such as Romans 8. In Romans 8, 20 to 20, or 19 to 23, it describes... The, uh, what's going to happen to the earth. It says the earnest expectation, of course it says all of the universe is, is affected and infected by sin. It's corrupted. <clears throat> and it says, but this is what's going to happen. It says the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God who subjected it, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also uh, have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for adoption, the redemption of our body. So four different reasons in that text would suggest that it's not going to be an ethereal uh, you know, uh, place just kind of out there or something that's completely brand new. But instead, as we'll see in a moment what the Lord has in mind. 
But in verses 19 and 20 in that passage, it's anticipating a change, not annihilation. <clears throat> in verse 21, it says it's going to be set free from slavery. It's going to be delivered from bondage. That doesn't, describe, it doesn't seem to describe the earth as being completely annihilated and now a new one being created. Uh, in verse 22, it describes the birth pangs, suggests that there's going to be a birth not death or termination. And finally, it says your body will be resurrected. Uh, that is, we're going to have a physical body, and it's going to be in a physical place. <clears throat> so again, we want to move away from the idea of, even when we say you know, everybody's going to go to heaven uh, or hell, I think sometimes that's maybe a, um, a little bit of a distraction. Instead of saying we're going to go to a new heaven, or we're going to go to a new earth, a recreated earth. Uh, Randy Elkhorn wrote a book on heaven. I'll probably, if you've done any studies of heaven, you've come across the book. Uh, I've tried to read it in a very short time. I've scanned as much of it as I could. I've also referred to John MacArthur has one on heaven. I've read a number of journals, articles, things like that, to try to distill down to three weeks uh, what I can for you. But in Randy Elkhorn's book, uh, which is a good one, I think there's more speculation in it than I would be comfortable with. But, you know, you can kind of sift through it if you want. But it's a good read. There's a lot, lot in there that's helpful. <clears throat> One of the things he points out is the number of times in the Scripture where you see words that are prefixed by the, the two letters re. So you think of reconcile, re, reconcile, reconcile, redeem, restore, recover, return, renew, regenerate, resurrect, re, re, R-E, resurrect. Recreation. The idea then is that not that we're, God's going to wipe everything out and completely start a new creation, but He's going to change and going to uh, going to go back to the original and to improve it. And of course, He's going to uh, expel all of the the sinful effects and the corruptions that were introduced because of our sin. So when we think of heaven as a place where God dwells, and you put that together with the new heavens and the new earth, we see the uniting. Of the two, so again, when you die now, if you if you die before the Lord returns, you'll go to this intermediate state uh, where God is. Okay, so that you don't have your resurrected body yet. This is all kind of like, wow, this is really you know I don't think about this a whole lot, but Paul describes it being without your body is like not being clothed, and you you have this desire for your resurrected body, and that will happen after the judgment, and we inhabit the earth. Uh, but so there is an intermediate state, but that place of heaven <clears throat> will uh, come down, as it describes in Revelation 3.12, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. So heaven will now unite with earth. The earth has now been purged, it's been cauterized, it's been purified of all of the corruption, all the effects of sin have been removed from it, and now we have this new earth in John 21, 1 or 2, it says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, uh, prepared as a bride for her adorned husband. So again, it's not an ethereal place out in the you know, cosmos somewhere. It's right here. It's a reworked earth. And so uh, we see that heaven and earth will be united in the final state. Uh, there, I, I could go into the Greek words, uh, kainos, which describes it. Uh, when it says a new heaven and new earth, kainos is new in quality. Uh, it means fresh or pristine versus the word neo, which is new in time. 
But the word kainos is the one that's used for new heavens and new earth, again, with this idea that it will be cleansed, it will be purged, it will be new in quality and perfect. How should we think of heaven? Let me go through a couple of things here. The planet itself. Uh, MacArthur said this, it's hard to imagine a realm wholly devoid of sin and yet filled with the endless endling, but even as we try to answer some of the questions of what heaven will be like, and I say heaven, I'm now describing the new earth, okay? So I'm going to use the word heaven, but now we understand this is where heaven and earth are now together. We're living on the planet. And we're fulfilling, as I began to discuss last week, we're going back to Genesis uh, 1 and 2, where it says that we are to extend the garden around the planet, and now we're fulfilling that mission. <clears throat> and so uh, uh, even as we talk about that, we'll begin to see that some other questions are going to arise. We start thinking specifically, what about this, what about that? Now, again, Alcorn uh, ventures out in some of those, and he says, well, I think this, and I think that would seem to be a necessary effect of that. We do know it's a place you'll want to be at. Uh, when uh, Paul says, I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better? Now, again, uh, I mentioned last week, sometimes we get so used to the familiar, we're a little scared of the new. It's like, well, heaven, you know, as, as bad as things are here at times, you know, it's you know, in America, we're doing pretty well. I got a full stomach, and I, I get to go on trips once in a while, and I see sunsets, and I'm used to that. And so this idea of a radically new thing, well, as I mentioned last week, one author said, you might be surprised how familiar it is, not how unfamiliar. Uh, but again, it's hard to imagine what that's going to look like. So we have to be careful about speculating too much. We do know that there will be things, nature will be affected by this. We would not expect to see uh, tornadoes, tsunamis. I can think of that tsunami a number of years ago that killed 250,000 people in Indonesia. Those will not... Uh, be present that I would expect. Uh, typhoons, uh, earthquakes, lava flows that destroy cities, all those kinds of natural disasters, as they call them, or uh, uh, works of God is sometimes described in insurance companies, acts of God. Uh, we will not see the destruction that's brought about by the weather events. Uh, perhaps uh, Steve will want to talk more about that. You, know, you won't have a job anymore. Uh, it's going to be a say, it's going to be beautiful today. Yeah, okay, thank you. Uh, it's going to be beautiful tomorrow, and, and you know, forget it. It's just, so you're out of a job. Um, the foliage it describes in Ezekiel 28, there will no longer be a prickling briar or a painful thorn. I know some of you are going to be real happy to hear there will not be poison ivy. Again, we're not going to have all the negative things you can think about. Uh, in the animal world, we'll read that the wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. Um, <clears throat> and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Again, that's, it's hard to picture that. You say, well, what about, I mean, these animals, though, they have these big teeth. So what's going to happen if they're not going to eat that? What are they going to eat? What's it going to look like? And again, <clears throat> I don't want to speculate too much. I might, I'm tempted to speculate about poodles, uh, but <laughs> I got so much kickback in my sermon, I thought well, I might be, just want to avoid that, talk about poodles and their future. Um, I'm sure it'll be an improvement. Not, not that you can improve a poodle, <laughs> uh, but anyway. Uh, think about biting insects. I remember reading a book by uh, Teddy Roosevelt. I don't know if you ever read the story about him going down to South America 
And there was a river. They didn't know where it went and where it came, where it came out. Uh, so he and a group of, I think it was like 40 men, went to Brazil. I think, yeah, it was Brazil. You can look it up today. You'll actually see it says Roosevelt River. Uh, it's an amazing story. But he goes down there, <clears throat> and they're having, I mean, it's the worst thing you can imagine. Every time they turn a bend, there's more rocks, and they have to pull the boats out. They have to ford over the rocks and the, get all their equipment, go back in again. <clears throat> The hardships were just incredible. They almost died. But he, in the end, he says, but the worst thing in the whole thing was the insects. And he starts describing all the insects, you know, the embedding in their skin and biting them and all this stuff. And I thought, oh, that just sounds horrible. Well, all of that is gone. Again, we're not going to have the negative effects. Again, now, does that mean there's no insects? Well, I don't know that. Again, I don't, I would just, but we're not going to have the sinful, corrupted effect of the, the insects. So that would be a beautiful thing, too. If you think of some of the most beautiful places that you have ever been, I think probably the prettiest place I would say I've ever been is a place called Grindelwald. Now, if you ever heard of Grindelwald, is a place in Switzerland. It's got Mont Blanc. It's got the Jungfrau. It's got another one I forgot. But it's got these famous mountains. And it's just like, uh, what is the sound of music? You're around, and there's these, these lower hills that have green and then hit to the, the, the uh, mountains, and you have the Iger, you know, from the Iger Sanction, if you know, the fans of Clint Eastwood, the Iger Sanction right there, <clears throat> and have the Iger, and you just, and you can hear, you know, stuff from miles away. You hear the, the cowbells, like as the cows walk, you hear ding, 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 like this, and it's, and we, I hiked with some friends through this valley, and I thought, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. But what scripture says is, yeah, that's the corrupted version. I thought, what? I mean, how can it be any more beautiful than this? And you think about whatever sunset you've seen, corrupted. Think about whatever ocean thing you've seen, corrupted. Think about, I, I thought as recently, if you all do any internet searching, I imagine all you do. But you come across once in a while, like pictures of birds. Birds and fish I've seen are just they never cease to amaze me. The color is just incredible. And you just go on, you know, how, and there's, there's fish they haven't found yet. And I mean, it's the, the creativity of God. It's all fallen. These are the corrupted versions of it. Imagine being in a place with that all gone. I mean, it's hard to imagine. I just can't even, how could that, I mean, that thing looks perfect. That bird with those colors looks perfect. Looks, But in some way, we would expect to see that even... Uh, in a, in, a more, in a more beautiful way. And perhaps also with, uh, with our, then perhaps like, well, this seems like a natural outcome. You, like, you might say with evolution, well, that was an accident. No, we see it with an understanding now of it's a, a picture of the glory of God, the creativity of God, the beauty of God manifested just in a created uh, way. And then seeing it, you know, so with our minds renewed as well as uh, the effects removed. Uh, what about the people? What about us? Well, we're described as having a new body. In 1 Corinthians 15.50, it reads, Now I say this, this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. I think what's, what's interesting to me as I think about this is he says, I'd like, and I'm not saying God says this, but it's almost like me thinking it, is you're not ready to go there. He's like, I really want to go there. He says, you're not ready. Uh, I remember going to camp one time, outward bound, and I was told, uh, you're not ready. Uh, you have to work out. You have to go through this really strict regimen. 
for months before you go to this camp because we're climbing in the mountains and all stuff. And Okay, but I really want to go there. Okay, we'll get to work. And in a certain way, as Christians now, as we're being sanctified, all of this is a kind of a purging, a processing, a sanctifying, sanctifying work that God says, I'm preparing you for this place because you can't, it's like, you can't handle the truth. You can't handle heaven right now. I mean, that's, isn't that an amazing thought? Can you reflect on that? You, know, you can't handle it right now. Uh, but I'll, I'll prepare you. And that's what he's doing even now. Uh, so we're given these new bodies. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and we shall be changed, and this corrupt, uh, must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Uh, so again, he's preparing us for this. In Philippians 3.20 <clears throat> and 21, it says, Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. In 1 John 3, we're told, uh, we shall be like him. In 1 Corinthians 15, 49, and as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. If C.S. Lewis is correct, uh, he describes us in his work, The Weight of Glory. He says, if you were to see someone in this glorified state now, your temptation would be to worship that person. That's an interesting thought. He actually says, if you were to see somebody in their state of hell, it would strike horror in your heart, you know, horror in your mind to see someone in that state versus someone who's in a glorified state. Uh, I'll throw this as a little side application, and he says, and every time you interact with somebody, you're pushing them to one of the two. That's pretty heavy. That's the weight of glory, isn't it? Anyway, so he describes this. That's why when we see, that was MacArthur, one of them said, when we think about Jesus here, when he came back resurrected, uh, and we see him, we think, well, the disciples saw him. He looked like a normal man. You know, they touched his side, and they... Uh, it says in Acts 1, it talks about him giving proof, showing you know, he's eating. I'm assuming that he's eating food and showing them I'm, I'm a normal man. Uh, but at, as I said, I think it was MacArthur. Don't quote me on that. But essentially he said that uh, that's probably not the state that we would be in. It would be something more like what you saw in the transfiguration. Uh, that once, uh, you know, he, when, when Jesus ascended into heaven and took on his glorified state, that it's not just a, uh, you know, like we'd see ourselves right now, uh, but it would be completely uh, affected by this. And so that may be, again, the case for us. It may be that uh, when we are, have our glorified bodies on, it will be a, an amazing thing to, to imagine. In 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 4, uh, we, we read, if we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, for in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. That's what I described a moment ago. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we are in this tent groan, in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, that is we don't want to just get rid of our body, but we want a body that's fixed. And he goes on, he says, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. So it's disgrace, the praise in heaven. What will that be like? There's, there's something about <clears throat> collectively rejoicing, isn't there? 
if you've been to a stadium of 40, 50,000 people and your team wins at the last play of the game, you know, a guy catches it and the place just erupts and you can't scream loud enough. And that's just the most amazing uh, sense of what uh, it is to rejoice with other people. I think too often we look at church, especially when you're younger, you look at church and think, well, we don't jump up and scream. And especially if you're younger, as I said, even when I was younger, church, you got to put on nice clothes. You got to sing hymns that I, I mean, songs that we're not, you know, don't sing the other six days of the week, perhaps. That's not the music, it's not, doesn't have the stuff that my music has. Uh, we have to sit and listen to a lecture or sermon. And so when you're a kid, you know, a lot of times it's like, yeah, that just doesn't sound like a good time, you know, like at a football game. Well, I think we need to get away from the, the football game or maybe ha- perhaps use it or leverage it and say heaven's going to be closer. Uh, I want to say closer to that because it's not going to be about football. But it's going to be the combination of God's people together uh, in clothed with truth and light, rejoicing the way I think that we might see uh, even today in something like a football game. Uh, It's going to be a celebration following a battle that's been won. Imagine that. Imagine after World War II, the people go, oh, yeah, victory in Japan, victory in Europe. You know, no, I mean, everybody's running around hugging each other. It's like, we did it. It's over. And it's this way it's going to be in heaven. The battle will be done. And the Lord will reign. And we will have, uh, we will be reigning with him. Uh, So we need to think of this as being in the presence of one who is so great in majesty and power and dominion and authority and mercy and grace and love. That's going to be hard to look away from him altogether and had to turn away. I believe we would turn toward him, maybe perhaps shielding our eyes, uh, as it were. Again, I don't want to read too far into that, uh, but there will be a, a, a different relationship in that sense uh, once we have our glorified bodies and we're with him. So again, because that, at, at times when I think when we read about, oh, the angels are circling God, and they're, every time they're saying, holy, 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 that sounds kind of repetitive. We're going to talk next week about, is heaven boring? <clears throat> but is that, is that repetitive? One author put it this way. He said, the reason they could keep circling God and declaring his holiness every time is every time they went around, they learned something new because God is infinite. There'd be some new thing where they go, oh, wow, let's go again. And then it's like, wow. And imagine an eternity like that. Well, I can't. I can't imagine an eternity like that because eternality is I don't get it. It's like space. I still don't get how space goes forever, but it, you know, I don't get it. Uh, but again, this is the, the sort of the picture that's being described for us. Um, if you have trouble grasping just you know, some of the seeds of that, then perhaps that's still just remaining sin or finitude, lack of information, uh, lack of interest, maybe too interested in the things of the world to really stop and contemplate these things. Uh, but they should affect you. And again, we'll talk about that, Lord, next, Lord willing, next week. Uh, Paul or John writes in Revelation uh, 7, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to the Lord our God, who sits on the throne and the Lamb. <coughs> Again, remember, a huge victory. Uh, 
The angels stood around the throne, the four creatures, they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. Amen, and blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, might be to God forever and ever. And one of the elders said to me, who are out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. Again, these are just words that it's hard to really grasp them. Now, let me ask this, what will we do in heaven? Well, as I said last week, uh, now we kind of intersect the two that we talked about last week, the, the creation mandates. Uh, we were stopped from, well, delayed from that because of the fall of man, and now most, of, uh, most people have no interest in the creation mandates, as uh, perhaps they do it accidentally even, but uh, we understand as Christians we still have the mandate to extend the, the garden around the earth and to see God's temple of the whole earth. And that will continue uh, from what we read in Isaiah 65, for example. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another ha- inhabit. And they shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of the trees, so shall the trees of my, days of my people be. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Um, again, it talks about dwelling in their own land. You do run into, in the passages like Isaiah 65, you start running into some language, and I'm not going to go into it here, uh, that, that uh, will affect your millennial view, how you interpret it. You know, is the millennium uh, still something to uh, come? Is it something now? Is it, uh, is it amillennial, postmillennial, premillennial, all those kinds of things? The wording, this is the passage right here, we're sure of a time of God's, uh, of heaven on earth. Uh, finally, let <clears throat> just mention another thing that maybe is troubling to some people, but the Bible also describes that heaven, there's a, there are rewards and hierarchy there. Uh, we are told that there will be rewards. We think of the crowns that will be given. Uh, we're not talking about salvation. We're saying that there will be people who will go to heaven uh, who perhaps haven't been Christians very long or they've been sort of marginal, but they truly were converted. Uh, but all of this will translate into a kind of hierarchy uh, in heaven, for example, we read about this in uh, Matthew 25 where it talks about the parable things. So heaven is going to be a place of abilities carried out and people will be in different positions of authority. Again, that's something that in our day is absolutely hated. Uh, Marxism has so poisoned our thinking. It says, no, everybody has to be exactly the same. Any hierarchy, any authority structure is something that is... It's, it's a bad thing. It represents. It always represents oppression. Uh, of course, that's not true. The Lord set up hierarchies, and they're not. They don't have to be oppressive. Of course, sinful ones can be, uh, but even so, we don't want to um, eradicate that idea of hierarchy uh, because that's something that we'll see in heaven. Let me mention to you uh, when you think about that again, because we can have been. I'll close with this quote. Uh, we can have been inf- infected by this kind of thinking and say, well, that just doesn't sound right, and I don't know <clears throat> who's going to get what. And it does t- God talks about giving a certain number of talents to one person and getting that talents in heaven. It's, it's um, comparative to what they've been given on earth. Uh, will represent what will happen in heaven given what they have done with that. But one of the things I thought was fascinating was um, what Jonathan Edwards wrote about this. Because it's hard for us to think of hierarchy without thinking of jealousy or oppression. So how is it that we're going to be in a place where that's not going to be? Aren't you looking to say, oh, Bobby's a level above me. I don't like that. 
so it doesn't seem fair because I feel like I was more spiritual than he was. I mean, well, again, we know sin will be purged, so what would that look like? Let me just finish with uh, Edwards. He, seven, he says, in heaven there will be no remaining en- enmity, distaste, coldness, or dread- deadness of heart towards God or Christ. Not the least remainder of any principle of envy shall exist or be exercised toward angels and other beings who are superior in glory. Nor shall there be aught like contempt or slighting of those who are inferiors. Those who have a lower station in glory than others suffer no diminution of their own happiness by seeing others above them in glory. Isn't that an interesting one? Uh, On the contrary, all the members of that blessed society rejoice in each other's happiness. For the love of benevolence is perfect in them all. There is undoubtedly an inconceivably pure, sweet, and fervent love between the saints in glory. Those that are highest in glory are those that are highest in holiness, and therefore are those that are most beloved by the saints. For they must love those that are most holy, and so they will rejoice in their being the most happy. It will not be a grief to any of the saints to see these that are higher than themselves in holiness and likeness to God, more loved also than themselves, for they all shall, uh, for all shall have as much love as they desire, and as great manifestations of love as they can bear. And so uh, all shall be fully satisfied, and where there is perfect satisfaction, there could be no reason for envy. And the superior in glory will be so far from slighting those that are inferior that they will have, um, they will have abundant love to them, greater degrees of love in proportion to the superior knowledge and happiness. The higher any are in glory, the more they are like Christ in this respect. So that the love of the higher to the lower will be greater than love of the equals to the latter of them. Uh, again, this, that's so foreign to our thinking. It's hard to even imagine that. Again, there's a little bit of speculation here, but there are, the general agreement among theologians is there will be a kind of hierarchy. Perhaps this is how that would look. The ones that are in the lesser positions will glory that God has been so gracious to those above them. Those in the higher positions will desire to love and to serve those in the lower positions. It will be one of harmony, not one to, uh, to dread or to uh, not look forward to. Again, uh, these are what we see in Scripture. I haven't speculated a whole lot. Next week we'll talk a little bit about some of the uh, um, difficulties that we have in grasping it, but then thinking through what we do know, how can we apply that to our lives. Let's close in prayer. Father, once again... Uh, We come before you as finite and sinful people trying to grasp something that's so far beyond our imagination. You've told us that mind is not conceived conceived or understood those things that you have in store for those who love you. Uh, Lord, we recognize that we cannot understand the full expanse of of heaven and earth and of your reign and your rule and of our place in heaven and earth. Uh, But Father, we pray that what we do know would encourage us Uh, and that we will be different for having considered these. Perhaps some will be inspired to uh, seek out further information to find greater hope and anticipation of that final state. For those, Father, that are satisfied with earth here, I pray that you would stir in them a a sense of joy and anticipation, perhaps letting go of some of the things of this world, recognizing that they're corrupt, they're going to burn, and that they won't bring ultimate peace and joy and satisfaction as we will know it as we are with you in heaven. Uh, To all these things we pray and for all these things we pray for the glory of Christ in his name. Amen.